Today's episode is brought to you by Flats, a Chicago-based apartment community. Welcome to the Pivot Arts Podcast, where you'll find innovative performances plus interviews with artists and experts. I'm Julianne Ayer, the director of Pivot Arts. Today's episode, Black Utopia, includes interviews with performing artists Jen Freeman, also known as Pochop, and Anna Martine Whitehead. We'll hear excerpts of their performances, as well as original music composed and sung by Stacey Ehrenberg. We'll then close out with theater practitioner and community organizer Jocelyn Prince, principal at ALJP Consulting. We are kicking off today with performing artist Jen Freeman, also known as Pochop. Hey, Jen. Thanks for chatting with me today. It's so great to be with you. Yeah, thank you so much, Julianne. I'm excited. You were in the Pivot Arts Incubator program back in 2019, and we met a couple times uh, to talk about your work at that Sip and Savor Cafe in mm. Bronzeville. There's such a rich Black history in that neighborhood, and you lift up so much of that history in your work. I'm, I'm wondering, can we start there? Let's start in Bronzeville. Can you tell me more about your relationship to the neighborhood? Yeah. I mean, the history is really what drew me to Bronzeville. I was introduced to the history through a book called Lifting as They Climbed. Um, it's like a self-guided tour book that highlighted uh, Black women whose legacies were connected to Bronzeville. Um, so that's really how I began getting connected to and influenced by the history was through this self-guided tour book. What I have been super fascinated especially just learning about like Black women from Bronzeville that you've highlighted in your work. Uh, Zelda, Jackie Orms, the first woman, first Black woman with a syndicated cartoon in America, like never even heard of her. Uh, who was she? Can you tell me more about her and just how she's influenced your most recent piece with Litany? Yeah. Um, like you said, Jackie Orms, Zelda Jackie Orms uh, was a, a Black cartoonist who um, moved to Chicago as a part of the Great Migration. That's another thing about the um, Lifting As They Climb That book, is that it highlighted women from the Great Migration. So Jackie Orms was in that book. But uh, so she came to Chicago during the Great Migration and really was super active in the community, not just in her comics, but also, you know, she was connected to the Southside Community Arts Center, um, to the DeSable Art Museum, uh, helped kind of start the, start that. So she navigated uh, the community as well as used her comics to speak to what was happening in the Black community. Like she talked a lot about women's rights way before anybody really was talking about women's rights. Women's rights, environmental issues, housing issues within Bronzeville and beyond. So I see her comics as kind of a retelling of history in a way. Like you get a really good view and perspective of what life was like in that time just by reading her uh, comics, experiencing them, particularly for women, for Black women. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's 
simultaneously like joyous and tragic to find out about people like why why haven't their stories been told but just the power of being able to tell people stories uh, is is so important to just how we view ourselves how we view history um how has Jackie Orms played a, a large role in your this creation of uh, of Litany your your film project that's coming up for me, Jackie Orms impacted me um, in a variety of ways. I think I was originally drawn to her because as a burlesque performer, um, someone who sees and experiences a lot of like pinup and imagery, I hadn't really seen a ton of that imagery uh, reflect like uh, Black femininity. You re- hardly ever when you look at vintage pinup models, are they ever black? And so when you when I saw Jackie Orms' um, character, Torchy, Torchy Brown, it really resonated with me because Jackie Orms was fashionable. Uh, her characters were fashionable and Torchy specifically was like a pinup model in, in a lot of ways for me. So that's really how Jackie influenced Litany for me. I think I also, in Litany, I'm thinking about Uh, I'm thinking about prayer. I'm thinking about also this idea of resting and wondering specifically in the piece that is associated with Jackie Orms. I'm, I'm thinking about and meditating on what rest looked like for her uh, and how did she care for herself once she stepped away from her work? Yeah, this, you know, it's interesting, this idea of, resting has come up a lot in conversations I've had with people over this past year. And it's been really moving for me. Uh, I have a an awareness now how sort of white supremacist culture is always about progress and work and productivity and the permission that has been given, I feel like in conversations this year to just take a breath has, has been really powerful. Tell me just a little bit more about this idea of rest and kind of how it resonates for you. Yeah, I was first introduced to rest, this idea of rest as reparations, rest as resistance through the NAP ministry. And I think as soon as, you know, the pandemic hit, we all were forced to slow down And I think for me, I took that opportunity, still taking that opportunity to really look at what comes up when I do slow down, look at looking at my connection to productivity and the connection of productivity and my worth. Like I think, especially as an artist, especially during the pandemic, I do feel pressure to produce. I do feel pressure to be visible online. So looking at where, why I feel that pressure, where is it coming from? And like, can I push back against it? Can I find an identity that's not always connected to what I produce and who I am as an artist? Yeah, I think that's really what I've been thinking about and meditating on. And also thinking of this idea, uh, again, really influenced by the Nat ministry, this idea of dreaming of when I rest, it is allowing myself to connect to be in, to, co- to connect with ancestors, to connect with a potential portal, to go to a different space, a dream space where like I can, I mean, where anything literally can happen if I am open to it. 
Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. And what an opportunity we have this year. I mean, I wish <laughs> we did not have all the tragedy and yeah. the the death and the sickness that, that's come with this, but it it does kind of feel like a message from another world telling us to just stop. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I know? think about myself especially as we circle uh you know, a year coming upon being in the pandemic. I think about where I was before the pandemic. And like, I don't really want to go back to that. I can't, I physically can't go back to that, like the hustle and bustle, the the going from one gig to the next to like, somebody was like, I don't miss carrying my, my food everywhere. And that is, that was like, so true. Like, you know, you leave the house at eight o'clock in the morning and like you have a bag full of food and you have your bag full of change of clothes for like all the many different things that you're going to do for the day. And then you come home at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock exhausted only to wake up and do it again the next day. Like, I I hope that I can remember this moment when the time comes for me to, to begin performing or or I don't want to say returning back to, but uh, heading into whatever the next phases of working and, and gathering in the far, far future. But and it's such a construct of what we have created, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, that image of I just don't want to carry my food around. I mean, it makes me laugh, but it's so true. I mean, look at us as Americans, capitalist culture, like, look what we've created this world where, like, we can't just sit and enjoy our lunch (laughs) like why 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 do we do that yeah I think the biggest tragedy will be if we come out on the other side and go back to how we were you know (laughs) like yeah like things have things have got to change so litany it's a five-part film you're creating I watched some clips online it looks amazing um Tell me a little bit more about it. Like, what are you hoping to highlight with the piece? Litany, for me, um, I'm hoping to highlight, as with much of my work recently, uh, the legacies of Black women. I'm hoping to highlight the many different ways that we can praise and uplift folks. Uh, The many ways that we can just pray in general, that it doesn't always have to be this, like, we're on our knees, palms together, head bowed. Like, we can pray during movement. We can pray with our faces to a wall of open brown bags. You know, we can pray as a doll, pretending to be a doll. And that prayer, this is something that me and my partner Tiff have been talking about, but prayer doesn't have to be something that is connected to an entity or to a God, that it could be connected to ourselves. We can pray to ourselves or pray to the universe or pray to a plant like yeah, it doesn't have to be connected to God or really anything. It can be connected to the air. Yeah. And also, I think also prayer can be, with Litany, I'm thinking about prayer can be rageful. It can be gentle. It can be funny. Yeah. yeah. It's a wide More range like a of things. expression of, of what we're actually feeling rather than just kind of rotely going through the motions because we were told this is how it's supposed to be done. Yeah. Okay, sign sign me up for that church. <laughs> I'm <laughs> yes. there. I, I'm a member. <laughs> well, you developed the work 
uh, People's Church of the Ghetto, greatest history ever told to our people in our 2019 incubator program. I I love the the praying to the Lord, Audrey Lord, black lesbian poet in the piece. Honestly, as somebody who grew up in the church, who has a lot of memories associated with the word Lord, like being able to reframe that word, Lord, precious Lord, the the hymn, into a context that was healing and made sense for me. I think it it was absolutely where the where the where the People's Church of the Ghetto began. That mixed with coming upon stumbling upon this beautiful self guided book really is what influenced and kicked off the People's Church of the Ghetto. I think uh, learning about Audre Lorde and then realizing that I could use her life and her legacy and her work to further highlight other Black women and their life and legacy became and still is super important for me. There, There's this quote. So I watched one of the videos uh, from Litany for Survival, and there's this quote that you have from Audre Lorde poem towards the end of one of them. And I'm not going to say it as well as you, but, but I am just going to read it. Um, it talks about, quote, seeking a now that can breed futures like bread in our children's mouths so their dreams will not reflect the death of ours. Wow, that, that is so mm. beautiful. Um, tell me about why you used that quote. Like, why, why does it resonate with you? It resonates for me in a lot of different le- levels. I think going back to this idea of dreams being a portal dreams being a sacred space to connect um, and thinking about children who, I mean, as a child, I, I daydreamed all the time. Like I could spend hours literally just sitting and just like allowing my brain to just wander. And I think about when did that stop or when did that become less important or when did I stop allowing myself to get lost in my own dreams? Um, I'm not sure, but I'm sure at some point somebody told me that, you know, you need to be getting up and doing something. You need to go wash the dishes or like, what are you doing? Get up. Um, So I think about, for me, when I hear that quote, when I hear that portion of the poem, I think about trying to keep that sacred, trying to protect the future of our children's yeah, dream spaces, because she is acknowledging the death, what the death of dreams, and I appreciate that too. Like this kind of like honesty or transparency or acknowledgement that if we're not careful, dreams can die mm-hmm. or dreams can disappear. Yeah, it just popped into my mind the Langston Hughes famous quote mm. of "dreams, dreams deferred." That image of you in the tub with that line, I, I don't know. There was something about, I saw you as almost like a connector between ancestors from the past mm. and uh, children of the future. And just kind of, I feel like your work does sort of bridge these uh, gaps that we've had because we haven't been taught about 
figures from history who we, we should have been taught. Like the New York Times for a while started, at, you know, they didn't used to publish obituaries for black people. Um, so I can't remember when it was like a year ago or something. They just started publishing like all these obituaries of famous prominent blacks uh, who who they'd never, you know, who we'd never heard of because their stories were never told. Um, so I, I feel such a, a sense of gratitude towards you for, you know, telling some of these stories. So it's been a really tough year, right? Like we just can't sugarcoat it. Um, what, as you know, you know, we've been talking at Pivot Arts just about not going back to normal, um, reimagining what our future can look like. When you think about the idea of a Black utopia, what kind of future do you most want, especially for Black women? Hmm. The kind of future I want for Black women, I want a future of rest. (laughs) A space where Black women can be themselves without judgment whatever that looks like. Like we don't have to fit into somebody else's, into society's idea of what even the idea of woman is. Yeah. It's a hard, if that's a hard yeah, question. No, it's a big question. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a big question. Yeah. I mean, I think also, I think, uh, I think a lot about my mom and my family and my own like lineage, like what I would want for, for them. Like, yeah. And leisure. Yeah. yeah. I've been thinking about that too, leisure. Like, I don't even know if I fully understand what leisure means, <laughs> like what leisure means. Like, So we're going to close out with this fabulous reading uh, by your partner, collaborator, Tiff Beatty, called uh, Bronzeville Goddamn. What do we need to know about it before listening? Can you just put it in context a bit for us? What are we about to listen to? Yeah, Bronzeville Goddamn is a spoken word piece uh, written and performed by Tiff Beatty uh, that examines notions of displacement, uh, highlights the life and legacy of Bronzeville activist and public housing resident Beauty Turner, as well as shares in the history of housing and the relationship of public housing in Bronzeville. Great. Great. Okay. We're going to take a listen. And before we do, I just want to say thank you for being with me. It's so great to, well, we're looking at each other in a Zoom. Uh, Other people are just going to be listening to us, but it's been so great to be with you today, Jen. Yes. Thank you so much, Julian. I appreciate it. And here we are with uh, Bronzeville Goddamn, read by Tiff Beatty. Hey, love, what's happening with the land? Hey, love, do you know what's happening with the land? CHA handing out vouchers like Halloween candy on trick-or-treat night. Townhouses and mini malls popping up like popcorn in a microwave. Southern Illinois popping like champagne. It's too early for a toast, ain't it? What's happening with the land, love? We all need to be asking more questions. Praise the Lord, church. Audrey Lord.
of course. This service is illuminated by the life and work of the great black lesbian mother warrior poet, Audre Lord. Ashe. My name is Tiff Beatty. I'm with the People's Church of the Ghetto. The People's Church of the greatest history ever told to our people. The P is silent, but we are not. Ashe. The acronym in our name comes from Beauty Turner's Ghetto Bus Tours, which in the early 2000s were often imitated but never duplicated. And so in this case, it's necessary to reiterate it. Nothing is better than the original authenticity, which was created, curated, and orchestrated by the blessed and highly favored Miss Beauty Turner, a self-proclaimed writer and a fighter, voice for the voiceless Ashe, before passing in her sleep after an aneurysm, the ancestor Beauty Turner survived poverty, segregation, gender-based violence, humiliation. Ashe, beauty is a name she grew into with patience. Or perhaps Beauty's mother was a prophet too, to name her daughter Beauty Turner. Beauty was a mother of three. Beauty was Larry Turner's mother. She was Maple Turner's sister, Ashe. She was a Robert Taylor resident where she lived for 16 years. Before outside journalists, academics, activists, canvas, before the publications and cameras, outsiders, including reporters, came to Beauty for the scoop on the Project News, Ashe. Get on the bus and learn from us, says Beauty. Here's the history. It's 1999. Winter is nigh. The world is ending. And the plan for transformation in Chicago is just beginning. In Bronzeville, public housing residents are spilling like blood from wounded high-rise buildings. Explosives demolish property like prophecy without apology. Gentrification came in like a wrecking ball. Dislocation, what a spectacle. Beauty Turner must have muttered to a friend, a sociologist, filmmaker, possibly all speculation, obviously. Shh. What's happening with the land? Beauty spoke the softest when violence was imminent. Beauty saw innocence in the young cobra she spoke of, abundance in the depths of the hole they patrolled, love in the 4,415 family units filling 28 high-rises for generations before spilling like sour milk from 16-story carton-shaped communities in a government-sponsored mass dislocation, and that's just the tip of beauty's black belt. And here's where it gets personal, church. See, before our Bronzeville apartment with the backyard garden boxes, we were too busy to harvest. In the second bedroom, we converted into a closet before 4015 South of Bronzeville Street. 3S, these steps, this view, this love is true. Pochop was somewhere on the Kimball bus or maybe Belmont. Well, I was on 47th and Woodlawn. Somewhere between Vic Mensa and Minister Farrakhan, still living with my ex, not building a nation, taking long walks, long drags of wine-flavored blacks, trips to the gas station across from the Sunni Mosque, surrounded by synagogues. I swear to God, I 
meditated, I burned, I prayed, I shay, I moved 27 things, found feng shui before summoning the strength to give the devil back his keys. Praise the Lord. A mat property's lease is the devil and the landlord is a lie. I say. Do you hear that? Somebody's making plans. The devil has many hands slinging shots from the sky, flinging families to foreign lands without a glance, South Loop to Chatham without a chance, like Bronzeville. God damn. Royalty, um, royalty, um, um, royalty, um, 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 Salt was gold and gold was sure. Stand still, you will see them whispering, hang on, hang on and shine. There's a star for you. There's a star for you. There's a star for you. That's blue. There's a star for you. There's a star for you. There's a star for you. That's blue. That was an excerpt from Bronzeville Goddamn, written and performed by Tiff Beatty created as part of the People's Church of the Ghetto with Jen Freeman Pochop, followed by the song Crown Jewel, written and performed by Stacey Ehrenberg. Next up is a conversation with performance maker Anna Martine Whitehead. Hi, Martine. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's actually really nice to, like, we're in the Zoom right now. It's just really nice to see someone I know without a mask on. It's, like, beautiful to see your face. <laughs> well, you know, it's been a tough year, but it's also, uh, you've had some real successes lately that I'm just so happy about uh, for you. Uh, you've been the recipient of a lot of prestigious awards from the Foundation for Contemporary Arts Award, a Graham Foundation Fellowship, um, you were a 2020 MAP Fund grantee, which is such a hard grant to get. So congratulations. It's so well-deserved. Yeah. 
you've also been just a frequent collaborator with us, which makes me so proud. Uh, your work notes on territory was partially developed in our incubator program. We presented a workshop version of the piece. Both of those took places in site-specific spaces, and the piece was just very much about the relationship between architecture and Black bodies. Could you talk just a bit about how your movement practice relates both to present-day architecture, history of architecture? You often use the phrase containment architecture. Well, I'll say with that piece in particular, well, I guess for the last maybe five years or something, I've been thinking a lot about prisons and how being inside of them impacts my body. And that piece notes on territory, I think if I'm remembering my own history correctly, I think that's that kind of like first inkling of that concept of that piece came out of going into prison to work with folks at Stateville Prison um, through Prison Neighborhood Arts and Education Project. And my first semester working with students there, uh, I just hadn't been inside prison so often for so long. It's like every week for a semester. So for three or four months, every week um, for maybe four hours or a day or something, maybe a little bit more. And I would leave and I was always, every time I left that first semester, I was like, immediately wanted sensual pleasure. I like immediately wanted a hamburger or a massage or a bath or things that were like tender caretaking of my own senses. And the more I kind of paid attention to that feeling, the more I noticed how my muscles were actually physically sore. Like my, like I felt depleted. Mm. My muscles were sore. My joints ached when I left. I felt hungry when I left. Um, And I, I think that that probably even without being conscious of it probably was like the fomenting of a a very long meditation that I'm still in around how do people live through this? Trying to think about how one, like what does one need to survive physical containment? The things that we need, that we actually need to live like um, desire and joy and pleasure and um, moments of self-care, the ability to care for yourself access to that. So, I mean, I think what I, what I generally am really, I like thinking about when I'm making art is how I and others access freedom. So I think I've used for the last several years, I've been using architecture as sort of the constraint and then imagining uh, like, what are all the ways that we then psychologically, emotionally, physically, all the different ways that we sort of liberate ourselves even inside of those places. I mean, something I've really been always, always <laughs> concerned with is all, all the psychological work that happens, all the emotional work and the internal work that happens in places that are, and amongst communities that are invisibilized, that maybe there's an idea of, um, 
you know, so I'll, I'll talk about the, the opera that I'm working on right now, Force. So what is happening in Force is there's a group of people in a waiting room waiting to get in and visit folks inside a prison. And there's this memory erasing mold that's like leaking out of the bathroom and they have to escape the mold. And I, part of what that project comes out of is thinking about places, like if the, if the prison is sort of a hidden, invisible place that is built in such a way that the, the general, the quote unquote general public isn't supposed to be reminded of it. That waiting room is like even times 10 of that, right? Cause who even thinks about the waiting room? I mean, that doesn't even factor into our imaginary of a prison. We don't even consider that part of the prison, but it actually very much is. It's a, it's a central feature of it because that's where the caretakers who care for folks inside come and that's where they enter into this really strange uncomfortable relationship of proximity to this system where where you kind of when you're in that space you you become like you're you're not inside the prison but you are inside the prison yeah you're there's some like assumption about your own criminality or something that happens Mm, mm -hmm. so it's it's like a it's like a super weird place that doesn't really exist on anyone's map in their minds like a liminal space or in between space between realities yeah yeah not quite uh free because you have to go by the prison rules right um but you also are free because you are free to leave yes right Right. and so that like i i'm really interested in that as a metaphor for so many of us who find ourselves in situations where the assumption is that we don't exist or yeah we're, we're not we're invisibilized we're we're not there we don't show up in anyone's imagination and yet so much happens inside that waiting room. So much happens. And I was going to Stateville's waiting room, but also other San Quentin, especially other waiting rooms, and just sitting with, you know, you sit, you have to sit there for however long to get in, sometimes several hours, and you're sitting there and you're like, this is an opera. This is a telenovela. This is like so rich with story and drama and years and years of narrative. And, you know, none of these stories are ever told. And so a little bit of it is about telling a story, but also more for me, it's about imagining the stories are even happening. You talked about um, people that are invisible. And I it led me to wonder, just with notes on territory, with force, um, who are you telling these stories for? Who's your ideal listener or audience member? Well, I, those feel like actually two different questions. I, I'm telling the story for me. There's, they've just put out, I forget who published it, but they just put out a new edition of Octavia Butler books. There's like a compendium of a few of her books. And um, so there's been a lot of like, people have been like reminiscing about how important she's been for many of us. And yeah, there's been a lot of chatter around her. And something that I heard recently that she said that I've I, really resonates with me is she talked about going back in time to save her own life. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Great image. Yeah, and I love, I love the idea that she was making work that was futurist, futuring, was futuring work and also recuperative and was also for herself with the kind of presumption that she would exist in the future, meaning like 
her, not her in the individual sense, but her in the collective sense. Yeah, you know, I I sensed that so much in Notes on Territory. I saw several iterations of it, but especially at um, Arts and Public Life, there's something just very cathartic about that piece. It felt deeply personal, yet tied to history. So that I, I feel like that has really come through in your past work. It definitely feels like your experience as a teaching artist with Prison and Neighborhood Arts Project has deeply influenced your work, your emotional life. I'm just curious, uh, based on your experience just working in prisons, if you can talk just a, a little bit about how you would like to see our justice system transformed. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would I would I would love Okay, well, I'm an abolitionist, so I would love a world without prisons and police. A world where we actually stop using language about the humane and humanity, where we stop kind of thinking of ourselves as distinct from what we call nature, where we understand that we operate inside a massive ecology, that there is no, you know, the like classic abolitionist statement, there is no way, we can't throw anyone away because there is no way, which is also an environmentalist statement um, because they're the same thing, that we, that we have to know that we're, and, and right now, actually, I'm going to bring in my friend, Ron Reagan, who I was talking with yesterday. Ron's an amazing director and composer and performer in New Orleans. And we were chatting yesterday and we were talking about COVID. And Ron said brilliantly that COVID is the most anti-American disease there is because it absolutely demands that we understand that we are all touching one another. And we, we literally have to take care of each other. We absolutely must. We were talking about this because I was saying how I'm feeling really frustrated about people talking about like where COVID kind of touches disability justice is that at any point, any of us could get sick. And so therefore, you know, why not, why not go to the birthday party? Why not? you know, whatever, do the thing that's the risky thing because you're always at risk of becoming sick. And that's what disability justice teaches us, which is absolutely incorrect. <laughs> what disability justice teaches us is that we are responsible for each other. That's what it teaches us, that we're responsible for each other. And we, we, we are, we actually are. We have to take care of each other because we are the same. That's what I mean when I say, when I talk about Octavia Butler, saving herself as in herself, as in the collective herself. That's, that's the kind of when, so, so I think, so this is, and that's why I said the abolitionist thing first, because I knew I was going to talk in a roundabout way, but I think the, the, the thing about your question is I do want a world without prisons and police, but actually I'm not really, I'm not really thinking so much about the negation of prisons and police. I'm actually really what makes me feel excited and alive is thinking about a world that, you know, maybe COVID gives us one peek into 
you know, exploring or maybe not, I guess it just depends on how you want to deal with it, but a world where we understand that we all touch one another, that there is no, there is no me here and you out there, side note, everyone talking about, we should start locking up people who don't want to get vaccinated, which I hear a lot. That to me is like such a deep investment in this idea that there isn't a way that people go and it doesn't, it doesn't impact anyone else but that one person. Even if it only impacted that one person, that would still be a problem, but it's just not even true. So that's my, when I, when I make work, when I teach, when I build relationships, that's what I'm invested in is, yeah, yeah a world without prisons and police, but really a world where we understand we're each other's caretakers that we are in this really entangled relationship that your wellness is my wellness, right? That your sickness is my sickness. And yeah, that's, that's yeah. what I'm invested in. And, and that's, uh, that's just true of so many social illnesses too, like racism and, you know, it doesn't, it, it impacts all of us. And I a hundred percent love what you're saying and agree. I think that, your friend Ron Reagan is right. You know, this is very un-American and that we're all about the individual and pushing others out of our way. And it's been interesting, to say the least, to watch the kind of divide between those who understand that we need to take care of our neighbors and it's wearing a mask, all of that. It's not just about protecting yourself. It's about protecting society and those who are livid at the idea that their independent rights are being infringed upon. Post-pandemic, we need to reimagine our future here. Um, what does a Black utopia look like for you? The inside of a Black hole. <laughs> You're just going to leave it at that. <laughs> Mind blown. Um, my, my former arts and public life studio cohort person, um, Delano Dunn, we were, we were talking on a panel once and he was like, he was like, sometimes I think that, you know, black holes, that black people, there's a black hole where black people have traveled through it and they've made this amazing world for us on the other side. And they're just waiting for the rest of us to come and join. What a great image. I love that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think he was saying, I can't remember what we were exactly talking about, but I remember taking that statement as like, yeah, that there's like, you have to uh, be willing to go into the hole, you know, which is scary. And you're probably gonna lose your body. <laughs> like, yeah, probably gonna, space time is different, right? So you're probably gonna, things aren't you're not, you is not going to be who you thought you was. <laughs> Got a tesseract like wrinkle in time, huh? Yeah. Martine, it's so great to be here with you. Thank yeah, you, with you for chatting. And uh, we'll, we'll be looking for force and looking for your work really soon. Cool. Well, thank you so much. It's been good to chat. From the entrance, this place appears as a fort. I hate coming here, I hate being here even more.
My heart sinks, my ears ring, I sweat and I'm fatigued. I am so tired. Wow, wow, wow. I'm so tired of when I finally sit. I sink into this chair. I've been in this chair too long. It's hard to breathe. I look up to my surprise. A whole month has passed me by. And why? We just listened to a song from Force, composed by Anna Martine Whitehead, arrangement by Ayana Woods. It was sung by Zachary Nickel, Trayman Parker, Daniela Pruitt, and Ayana Woods. Our final conversation on Black Utopia is with theater practitioner and community organizer, Jocelyn Prince. Jocelyn, welcome to the new Pivot Arts podcast, episode two. It's so great to be with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I mean, we've been working together on this new strategic plan for Pivot Arts with your consulting firm, ALJP. But I was actually thinking back today, you know, I've heard your name a lot associated with dramaturgy and your theatrical career. Um, But this summer, I also learned that you were organizing kind of performance protests uh, around the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, And we didn't actually meet, but I attended one of them. And I think that was the first time I saw you in person. And uh, the image I have in my mind of you is you were seated off to the side under an umbrella. Your feet were up and we were told that you were resting because you were sick and tired of being sick and tired. And it was a really powerful image. I'm wondering, um, can you tell us a little bit about this combination of performance and protest and how it was conceived? Yeah, sure. Um, This, you know, performance 
protest piece, I guess is what it evolved in, was a direct response to the murder of George Floyd. And in concert with all of the Black Lives Matter protests that was that were happening across the country over the summer. Um, and so the protests began as sort of a very um, traditional street visibility protest where we stood on the sidewalk, we held signs, we encouraged people driving by in their cars to honk, uh, to raise awareness for the Black Lives Matter movement. And there was a lot of participation. We had hundreds and hundreds of people come out to um, some of the, you know, the first uh, protests that we held. We started doing this daily. And then we started to notice that participation and enthusiasm started to wane and the heavy lifting of the organizing to continue to get people to come out and stay involved uh, was falling on my shoulders. And I just started to think about this idea of rest and what rest would look like for a Black woman like myself, who has done so much political organizing over the course of my life, and what it would look like if I'm at an event like a protest and I'm not running around with water bottles and a megaphone and organizing people and, you know, doing all the coordination. But what if I'm able to kind of relax and that labor is taken up by uh, white people? And so the the beginnings of it just started with me one day saying, you know what, what if I wore just a white summer dress, you know, and it kind of evolved from there. And we added a beach chair and a towel and a, uh, you know, a, a fan, a paper fan and a bucket for me to soak my feet and a large straw hat and all of these other performative elements. And it just sort of became a shtick um, that I thought, you know, everyone that walked past this, did they know exactly, you know, the story behind it and what we were trying to convey? Probably not. But I think it was very impactful for the people who took the time to kind of understand what it was that we were doing and what the, what the image and what the symbolism meant. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, for sure. And this idea of rest has, I've been hearing it a lot lately from BIPOC friends and collaborators, and it, it really is quite powerful, um, especially just thinking about the recent election and kind of our dependence these days on Black women to do so much of, of the heavy lifting. And I, I did, I loved the combination of performance with protest. It, it was really moving and, and quite powerful. For me, Politics has just always been an extension of my my citizenship. I, I think a lot of people see me as as you know sort of sort of naive in this area, especially activists who are not working in the political arena. But I really believe in the American system of democracy, and I think that in order for it to work, everyone has to stay involved. It's a social contract that everyone must participate in, and I think when you have a breakdown in that system what emerges is someone like Donald Trump, an administration that is just so horrible and awful because ordinary people didn't pay attention and vote. And so for those reasons, I've just always kind of believed in uh, civic participation. And theater for me has always been very related to social justice, furthering uh, dialogue, um, inspiring empathy, communicating, um, you know, across cultures, across nations, um, doing things that are going to bring people together 
I think all of that is is very much related to how I see as the function of theater, like its core uh, value to society, I think has to do with making the world a better place. Tell me a little bit more just about your consulting firm, ALJP Consulting. Uh, what, what made you decide to found it? Sure. So we were really interested in making some tangible change in the arts and culture sector, specifically with regards to representation of BIPOC people in administrative positions in arts administration. And we think that there's a disconnect between how some of the white established firms are approaching their searches from what is happening um, amongst BIPOC artists and administrators. I want to see people rethinking the way that their organization is structured, people making bold hiring choices, people seeing anti-racism work as an essential part of the way that they do business. Yeah. And I'm curious, do you uh, see this as a teaching moment for yourself or are you tired of teaching white people? (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. That's such a good question. I don't think I get tired of teaching about things because I do consider myself to be an educator. But I think Uh, that I think that sometimes I feel sort of hopeless. Like I feel sort um, of sort of like you know, overwhelmed of, of does all this teaching and this training and all of this dialogue, is this going to actually result and manifest in sustainable, tangible change? Yeah. You know, if I asked that partly because I, I think it's just still so hard for us to talk about race as a country and to kind of own up to our history. And this is such a moment, right? Like we're really grappling with slavery for the first time, it feels like, or starting to. I I don't know. I have kids and their education uh, is so different from what I experience. And so, you know, I, I feel hopeful that we're having important conversations right now in ways that we never had before. I'm wondering if, if you do as well. Yeah, I think, I think definitely the the level of dialogue that I've been able to have with people, and I think that the the national dialogue is a lot more nuanced now than it than it had been. I think that George Floyd's murder was a really sort of searing. I mean, I I had nightmares about that for weeks. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would sort of see my, my brother as George Floyd or, you know, some of my friends as George Floyd, like it was really bad. And I think that for a lot of people that really was a sort of wake up call to people that had not been paying attention to this. And unfortunately it's something that is easy for white people to not pay attention to. Whereas black people are sort of living with this day to day, this like constant threat of this violence But what I think people are starting to sort of realize, uh, hopefully, is that all of our liberation, our uh, our liberation is bound up together. You know, white supremacist culture is not good for anybody. It's not good for white people. It's it's a bad system under which to live that, you know, marginalized and is violent towards not just people who are BIPOC, but women, people who have disabilities, the elderly. You know, it is not a system that is good for anybody. And I think that once people start to realize that, 
that's when we're going to see real change happen. Yeah, definitely. You know, when we were talking just earlier about politics and, you know, that you've worked on President Obama's campaign, I started thinking about how naive we were back in back in the day, back in 2008, especially white liberals. Uh, you know, after Obama was elected, there was talk about what this being a kind of a post-racial society. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, whoever said that was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've we've had some pretty extreme. I don't even insurrections <laughs> recently. Um, the rise of white nationalism is is pretty frightening, and you know, we hope now that Trump is off Twitter and in Florida, all that's going to go away. But of course, it, it's not just going to go away. I think that now is the time to really face some hard truths. You know, I think that Republicans have to realize that you have brought in right white nationalists into your party. You know, conspiracy theorists feel totally comfortable in your party. And what does that mean? And what are you going to do about that? I think that it's incumbent upon people to stay vigilant and stay involved. People need to understand that our democracy is fragile. Every democracy all over the world is fragile and, and uh, susceptible to authoritarian dictatorship. And unless we're vigilant about that, you know, we can become, we can go down the spectrum of going towards Belarus and North Korea, you know, and Venezuela. So, you know, yeah, I, I, we have to stay involved. We can't become complacent. It's not just about getting Trump out of office. This, these people, this movement, this spirit is not going away. Yeah. What, you know, we're talking about utopia this year, uh, this season. What, what does utopia look like for you? Where, where do your dreams kind of take you in terms of a Black utopia, reimagining utopia? I think a Black utopia lately, I think, is about self-determination. I think that when I think about a Black utopia, I think about Black-owned businesses. I think about Black people having full agency over their lives. I think about uh, investment into Black thought and Black culture And I think that that utopia can't exist. Like, I think that it's that some of the goals of that utopia are achievable, you know, but I think that it's hard to live in a white supremacist society as a black person. And I think it's important for black people to establish their own sort of ways of working, ways of thinking, ways of earning money, um, ways of being in the world outside of that culture. I think that's a really healthy thing to do. You know, it's a worthwhile endeavor. It's good for just serenity and sanity, quite frankly. Utopia is 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 within reach. Just got to yeah. keep working for it. We we have a lot of work to do as a culture, as a country, um, but it definitely helps to start thinking about what what the future can look like. And I I love those ideas of self empowerment. They're they're so important. Uh, It's so great to chat with you today, Jocelyn. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. To learn more about Pivot Arts and our upcoming events, 
go to pivotarts.org and click on Get Updates or follow us at Pivot Arts. Today's episode was underwritten by Flats, a Chicago-based apartment community, with editing by Hannah Forschler and original music composed by Andrew Hansen. I'm your host and producer for Pivot Arts, Julianne Ayer.